Jack Horner is a severely dyslexic dinosaur paleontologist. He attended the University of Montana for 14 semesters without receiving a degree. He has since received two honorary doctorates of science and a plethora of awards, including a MacArthur Fellowship. Jack was curator and regents professor of paleontology at Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana for 34 years. He has more than 300 publications. He was the technical advisor for all of the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World movies. At Chapman University, where he now teaches, Jack encourages his honor students and dyslexic mentees to challenge their preconceived ideas. Jack Horner, welcome to the Creative Process in One Planet podcast. Thank you. It's like you've taken most little boys' childhood dreams and made a life out of it. Tell us about when you realized that dinosaurs were special and this was what you were going to do with your life and how do they continue to fuel your imagination? I can't even tell you exactly. I found my first fossil when I was six years old and I found my first dinosaur bone when I was eight. My first dinosaur skeleton when I was 13. When I was a kid, I knew I wanted to be a paleontologist and I didn't think there was much hope for it though. I was doing very poorly in school. I think I was always a pretty positive kid. And so even though I wasn't doing well in school, I was really happy about the fact that I was finding all these cool fossils and I was making collections. And when I was 12 years old, I gathered together all my fossils and, and put them in our county library. I made an exhibit so other people could see it. And so even the townspeople and some of my classmates then all thought was really cool that here was a kid that was basically the bottom of his class making these cool exhibits that everybody was excited to see because at that time, nobody actually knew that all these interesting fossils were right in their neighborhood. I don't know when it came to me that I would do this, but I think I just was born this way. And it turns out geography was a huge element of your life because we're talking about Montana and in terms of fossils that were available for the finding. Yes. Geology was very important in my life. It was important. It brought my grandfather to the area originally. He came because of oil in the area and my father got into the gravel business. So he dug big holes in the ground. I ended up digging small holes in the ground. So. Geology has been very important. Yes. And you spoke a little bit about there's learning advantages and disadvantages and you had dyslexia. Do you think that helps with your ability to discover or, or see things in different ways and just spot things? It probably does. A, a lot of people claim that. I don't know because I don't know how you think. I don't really know how non-dyslexic people function. And so I assume it helps me because that's what I do. I'd like to think that it is. I know that I'm a very spatial person and I know that I try to separate I, for my own, maybe it's my ego that, that separates this out linear thinkers versus spatial thinkers, linear thinkers. I consider those the people that really are good at reading and understand letters and things like that. And myself, I'm terrible with letters and numbers, but I'm very good at picking up a fossil bone and just really getting a sense of it by looking at it, examining it, touching it, touching all parts of it and 
I don't know. There's a difference between us, but like I said, I've never been a linear thinker, so I don't have a clue. Yeah. And then of course people can go through the different communication systems, but I imagine for you, you're attuned to these different time periods and you have the sense. I can only kind of intuit. I'm an artist too. So I understand maybe you get a sense of the history. Just bring us into your thought process. So you're finding some of your first fossils or you discovered the first dinosaur eggs that were discovered in the Western hemisphere. What was that like? It's not any different than finding money on the street. When you're out looking for something, I don't know that there's a difference between one person and another as find actually finding something. There are people who find fossils better than I do, but when I'm looking for a fossil of some sort, I'm walking around, I'm concentrating on the ground and I'm looking for anything that's out of the ordinary. And I'm constantly trying to challenge my own ideas in what I expect. In other words, we know what we have found in the past and how we have found it. And as I walk through the Badlands. I'm always challenging myself as to what I have found and how I have found it, hoping that there's the possibility that I will find something new in some kind of sediment or I hadn't looked in before. In other words, I'm always trying to challenge my ideas of where stuff is. And of course, there's a bigger process, perhaps it should not be phrased as finding because you are also a curator. You built up one of the largest collections of dinosaur remains in the United States. There's a whole larger storytelling and educational process beyond the discovery. There is. You build up a big collection by sending out an awful lot of people to start digging. When I first got to Montana State University, the Museum of the Rockies, they had a dozen fossils. And they wanted a big fossil collection. So I went out and acquired some money and got some students and basically went to work on getting as much fossil material as possible so that we could actually do the kinds of studies that I wanted to do that included having lots and lots of stuff. It was the same thing I was doing when I was eight years old, really. I filled up my house. My mother told me I had to get a museum because the house was full. That's great. They must have loved you, loved your enthusiasm for it. But uh, having to live between the furniture, I imagine uh, tripping over fossils. Of course, a lot of people will know your work from how you inspired one of the main characters in Jurassic Park. And that brought so many young people who were already fascinated in dinosaurs into this whole imaginary realm of what if dinosaurs could be brought back. And it's very exciting. But one thing I want to go back, because I wasn't sure if I was really clear about this story, your discovery of these dinosaur eggs. You had said, and I couldn't understand it, you knew there were some dinosaur eggs, but you would come back to them later because it was end of season. And it seems to me like dinosaur eggs are so rare. One clutch of eggs, that was true. When we found the first dinosaur eggs out there, one of my students found the first egg, and then we just started digging and looking. We found a lot more, but the find that you're speaking of was actually, I think it was 1983, but uh, we had a, a film crew out from the program 2020. And the journalist was Hugh Downs, who was a very famous journalist. And he was out there and he was asking me about 
eggs. And I said, we had just found a clutch of eggs and I would show it to him. And so we walked over and when I was showing him this clutch of eggs, I knelt down by it. These are eggs that I had actually found the day before. And we just left them there so this film crew could actually see them. And so I knelt down and I realized that they weren't normal eggs. There were actually baby skeletons inside of them. And they were literally the first dinosaur embryos found in the world. But I didn't want to say anything because in science, we like to publish our stuff first. We don't want someone else to publish it first. And so I just didn't say anything. I said, this is a clutch of eggs. I didn't say that there were little baby skeletons in them. <laughs> so I would actually, and waited until the film crew was gone and then had to even wait till the next day. Cause it was snowing that day. And so we waited a couple of days before we could actually get those eggs out of the ground. It's amazing just to speculate on what it was like when dinosaurs were on the earth. How have your ideas transformed over the years? Well, our ideas of dinosaurs continue to change. When I went to college, when I first went to college, the professor that taught paleontology, when I told him I wanted to study dinosaurs, he just laughed at me and he said, we know everything there is to know about dinosaurs. They're boring. They're just big reptiles that went extinct. We study mammals here. And so I had to learn about fossil mammals while I was going to college because people didn't work on dinosaurs. And if you go back and look at pictures from those days, that was the idea was that dinosaurs were these big giant reptiles that were just walking around looking for a place to go extinct and they drug their tails and it, they were just wasn't much to them. And it just so happened that that was right around the time that a guy named John Ostrom at Yale University challenged that idea and was able to show that dinosaurs were actually more bird-like. They weren't like lizards, they were more bird-like. And so I was at the right time. I started my interest in dinosaurs coincided with this time when people were learning a lot more about dinosaurs. And, and so early in my career, when we found baby dinosaurs, the baby dinosaurs actually helped support the idea that they were more bird-like because it showed that dinosaurs cared for their young and brought food to their babies and lived in colonies. And they were very social creatures like birds. And so that was a huge change in the way people thought about dinosaurs. And more recently, we've even learned that they're even more social than what people even thought back then, that they traveled in these giant herds and there were probably family groups. And then more recently, we've also learned that the characteristics that birds have were probably characteristics that dinosaurs had before them. In other words, the whole very colorful, the colorful palette that we see in birds was probably evolved by dinosaurs. So dinosaurs were probably vividly colored. They probably danced and sang. Basically all the things we think of as bird-like probably 
are characteristics that dinosaurs invented. It's amazing. I try to think about what the sounds, because obviously with the larger instruments make different sounds. Then we think about the beautiful, manipulous, tiny birds, what that music would be like from a large dinosaur. It would be probably just like a bird, except a much deeper sound. And we've actually done some experiments. So we CAT scan these skulls and then reconstruct the internal structures and then blow air through them virtually, then see what kind of sounds come out. And of course, just as we would expect, the dinosaurs with the big crests on their heads have these very deep infrasounds, much like an elephant. And the smaller individuals, like the babies, have very high-pitched sounds, just like little birds do. So high-pitched sounds don't carry very far, and ultraspeed infrasounds carry a very long distances. So we could tell the dinosaurs could communicate over very long distances. The adults could, and the juveniles would just make squeaky sounds like little birds do. I'm particularly fascinated by your TED Talk on the Chickenosaurus. Ah. I'm curious about where this project stands now. So are you still working on it? And what else have you been able to discover, if anything, since this TED Talk? We have made some huge strides. And I can't tell you about some of it because it's actually research that is in press to be published. So when we first started this project, everybody thought it was just the craziest idea ever. And people actually would call me and tell me, you can't, you shouldn't even be talking about stuff like this because you're never going to get anybody to work on it. It'd be the death knell for any graduate student or postdoc to work on this project because it's just a ridiculous idea to try to bring back dinosaurs genetically. And so it took me quite a while before I found some postdocs that were willing to take a chance to work on it. And I found one of them in France and another one here in the United States. And they initiated the project and have been working on it since 2012. So 10 years. And, and what's funny is just a couple of years after we published our first paper, a laboratory at Yale University popped up and they started working on it. So even though it was a crazy idea at the beginning, a lot of people have started working on the same thing. So. I guess it's not so crazy anymore, <laughs> but between the Yale lab and our lab, first off the Yale lab, one of the things that were in my book, how to build a dinosaur that I published back in 2009, I set out the goal of trying to bring back dinosaurs by restarting what we call atavistic genes. So genes that had been turned off during the course of evolution. We could just turn back on again and get characteristics without trying to add anything to a bird. And so we started going through looking for atavistic genes and the Yale lab found a way to doing just that, alter the way the skull looks, the head looks. So instead of having a bird with a bird-like head, they actually theorized a way to make a bird that has a more velociraptor-like head. And another fellow at the University of Wisconsin figured out how to at least initiate teeth. We started working on the tail. If you look at a velociraptor and compare it to a bird, like a chicken, a chicken has this bird-like head with a beak and so forth, and they have wings and they have 
basically no tail. And the difference is that the Velociraptor has a long tail. It has arms and hands instead of wings, the same structure, but their arms and hands with claws on it. And then the head is, of course, the head that you see in the, on the Velociraptor. And so the Yale crew at least came up with an idea that would alter the head shape. And we started looking at the tail and peripherally with the arms and hands. And we started doing all sorts of things. We, first off, we're looking for atavistic genes. What we discovered was that the tail was not an atavistic characteristic. We just couldn't flip a switch and get the tail back. But what we did discover was actually how the bird tail forms. And now it, even though it's not an atavistic gene, we're pretty sure we know how to rescue the tail. In other words, we're pretty sure we know how the tail formed exactly and how it reduced and how to fix it. And also along with that come the hands, the arms and hands. We think we can fix that too. And it all has to do with the same mechanism. And this is actually the thing I can't really tell you about because it's research that is currently in press. Yeah. So this idea of genetically creating a dinosaur is very Jurassic Park-esque, but the method that the scientists use to create the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park doesn't seem super scientifically accurate. So I was wondering if you would ever want to create a Jurassic Park-like movie that is more rooted in modern science and your discoveries and is based around the idea of the Chickenosaurus. I'm pretty sure that Amblin and Universal have run the course with dinosaurs, bringing back dinosaurs after six movies. I can't imagine. I think I'm pretty sure they've saturated the world with dinosaurs and people together. It would be cool uh, if they made a dinosaur movie about dinosaurs, even if they made it as a time traveling movie where people actually go back in time and see what dinosaurs actually look like rather than bringing them forward and making monsters out of them. So unfortunately, the method that my team is trying to do, we learned early on in 1993, when the movie came out, we did not know that you could not get DNA out of an insect in amber. It was a plausible idea. And so then we tested it and weren't able to get it. My former student, Mary Schweitzer, we worked on trying to get DNA out of a dinosaur, out of a T-Rex, and that failed as well. So. But some of my other students more recently, Lita Bayouel, a French woman, has done some tests to suggest that DNA probably exists in dinosaurs, but it's too small to do anything with. And just not enough left of the DNA to make a dinosaur. So that's why we're trying to make one a different way. But uh, even if we are able to make a dinosaur this different way, it's not going to be a way that you can bring back a stegosaurus or a triceratops or a T-Rex. So if we want to see those kinds of dinosaurs, then we're probably going to have to make a movie with realistic dinosaurs and go back in time and see them. And speaking of other ways, if not being involved in another major motion picture that tells a different story of dinosaurs, you have the Horner Science Group and you were talking a little bit about VR presentations and there's next-gen interactions. Just tell us a little bit more about those projects. Yeah, the Horner Science Group is a company that my friend 
Audrey O'Connell and I started. And the idea was to see if we could venture into some other, well, away from academics and into the world of business. And I'm an educator and I'm interested in educating people about what dinosaurs were really like. And one of the ways to do that is through making exhibits, working on exhibits for museums or, or for whatever venue that we could find to put them in. And so working with some of these other companies that make things like exhibits and actually work with them to try to update their ideas of what dinosaurs were like. And so we're doing a lot of that. Modern exhibits oftentimes have a lot of VR in them and a lot of computer graphics and things like that. So we have to work together with companies that are interested or, or doing that sort of thing. We started working early on with Microsoft to make these virtual dinosaurs that you could put a mask on, VR mask and see these dinosaurs. We also made a little game. So the kids, a little VR game that, that kids could play and dig up dinosaurs. I don't know, we're just trying to figure out ways to go beyond what we could do at universities and see if we can figure out ways of just sharing all this new information. One of the things we did also was make these NFTs, right? So working with Fabio Pastori in Italy. It's also very controversial. Our ideas of these dinosaurs are very colorful. And this is how I think dinosaurs should look. But most people have been jaded by the Jurassic Park movies. They think dinosaurs should look like they do in Jurassic Park and be very lizard-like running around eating everybody. And I think they should be more bird-like and pretty and that our vision of dinosaurs should just be just like we look at birds. We look at birds and we think they're beautiful. We look at a crocodile and think he's scary. And so people think about dinosaurs like crocodiles and we're trying to just make a paradigm shift to get people to think about dinosaurs. So would there be some that might be more reptile or crocodile-like and then would be others that are more bird-like? Oh. Would there be some that are descendant? Yeah. First off, meat-eating animals eat other animals. So the meat-eating dinosaurs would be scary. But on the other hand, we should think of them more like an eagle or a hawk rather than Tyrannosaurus rex chasing jeeps around. The thing that Jurassic Park, and people didn't really realize it, but it's a Steven Spielberg thing. He makes animals that did eat people, whether it be a shark or it'd be a dinosaur. These are animals that will break through a building just to eat a person rather than eat a triceratops that's sick out laying out in the field. If you remember Jurassic Park, there was a triceratops out there that was sick and it was just laying out there and nothing was eating it. But the dinosaurs, when they got loose, they were just chasing people around. We see one scene where a T-Rex takes down another dinosaur, but for the most part, they're just chasing people. And so the general public's notion of dinosaurs is that's how they would be. They just chase people and the hawks and eagles just don't go around chasing people. That's all there is to it. So, and our idea of them, an eagle, and they do it in a pretty gruesome way. They basically just knock them down and start eating them alive. 
And the dinosaurs probably did the same thing. They probably may have scaled their prey, climbed up on it and started eating, but still they would be vividly colored and our idea of them is just out of kilter. The movie people have given us an idea of what these animals look like that is just not realistic. Sure. I understand it's the purposes of drama. I mean, I don't judge life on, on just what's in the movies. It'd be like, it's just like going to Africa, right? We go to Africa and if you look at a documentary about Africa, you have lions eating this and cheetahs chasing that and all of this stuff, but they compress all of that, right? Because when you go to Africa, as if anybody's ever been there, you go there and the lions are sleeping. The cheetahs are sleeping. The action doesn't happen very often. It's not something that you could just go see anytime you want. You can see it on a documentary because people sit there for a long time and wait for things to happen. And they put it all together in a documentary that's all squished together. But you go to Africa and see animals eating grass and that's about it. Exactly. And if we thought about our own eating practices, we're very wasteful. We're responsible for a lot, but it's sanitized and distanced. So you spoke about your work with VR and you're working for the exhibits for museums. You never really retired. We should talk about some of those projects. Microsoft, you with the University of Washington, the Burke Museum, another museum in California. I still teach here at Chapman University. Yeah, I definitely haven't retired other than from Montana State University. But yes, I have a lot of other projects going on. This summer we were out collecting a dinosaur and it was found on land who wants us to put it in the Burke Museum, which is fine. When we collect a dinosaur, it doesn't matter what museum it goes to, as long as it goes to a museum in the public trust. In other words, it goes to a institution where other scientists can see it and study it. So that's the connection with the Burke Museum is collecting stuff for them. I still collect stuff for the Museum of the Rockies, Montana State University. I spent a lot of time there this summer as well, because one of my former students replaced me. So he is now the curator. And so that's cool just to see my student at work. But yeah, all of these projects that we have, as I was saying, it's all concentrated on education, on educating the general public and sharing the research results with other colleagues and anybody else who will read about them. And at Chapman, you teach a course, The Origin of the Universe, Life and Consciousness? Yes, I will start teaching it just in a couple of weeks. I was just working on the syllabus yesterday and it starts out with the origin of rules, right? The origin of laws before you can even get to the origin of atoms and and so we have to have the origin of, of rules it happens at the same time as the origin of time. So yeah, we just basically go through the origin of the universe, the origin of life. And we even talk about whether any of it even exists. Existence of things has a lot to do with scale. We think of ourselves, we're really big and you, you, you know, we can touch ourselves and feel something that seems solid, but even we know that we're made of atoms. And atoms really, an individual atom isn't a solid structure. It's just energy. So it's just a matter of scale. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it does. We've had conversations about this the whole time space. It makes sense, but I always lose track of it at the same time because I do believe in a way what I see. Fortunately, when you look at the scale of the universe from strings and string theory to galactic walls and galactic clusters, it's a huge span of sizes, right? Of everything. So, and we're fortunately in the middle. So you can get into an awful lot of philosophy and you can get mired in all sorts of things. And in my class, I just breeze past a lot of the complexity to it. And we look at it from a very reductionist point of view, not necessarily simple, but we talk about tie the whole thing together so we can think about it from different aspects and different scales. And so, yes, it becomes easy once you start tying things together to talk about atoms and molecules and consciousness all in the same sentence, really. When you're going back and forward between different time periods or so, I don't know whether you feel more at home in the past in some ways than this disorientating effect when you're maybe stuck in traffic or at the grocery store. <laughs> what is that like? That's one of the cool things about, well, paleontology, especially or geology, right? Or astrophysics. It doesn't really matter. We live at a particular time and we can think about the future. We hardly ever think about the past unless it's people have bad memories of the past and they might think too much about that. But usually us humans, we are always thinking about whether it's the past or the future, we're thinking in our lifetime. And as a geologist, I can think back four and a half billion years as a geologist and as an astrophysicist, then I can think back for 13 billion years. I mean, it, and understanding progression of everything from the big bang till now, I'm comfortable moving anywhere in time. So I can imagine myself back sitting on a hillside, watching the dinosaurs or further back, looking at Pangea or just basically anywhere in time. It's hard for me to imagine the future, although some parts of the future are think about geology. We could think about the changes that'll occur. It's hard to think about, and even ecosystems, they're pretty easy to think about in the future, as long as us humans don't mess them up. <laughs> which we have a tendency to do. Yeah. So thinking about those extinctions, what lessons do you have or reflections on the sixth extinction? The dinosaur extinction, the dinosaurs didn't really have much to say about it. A meteor crashed into the earth and wiped them out. So we, on the other hand, are creating quite an extinction right now. And we actually could do something about it, but we're not going to do anything about it because we're just greedy. We always just slough it off to the next generation. They can fix it. We say, I'm a war baby, right? I was born in 1946 and by 1964, when I graduated from high school, our generation was going to fix everything. And yet we became the biggest consumers in the history of the world. So we didn't fix anything. We just made a bigger mess. So I don't think we can leave it up to anybody because everybody wants 
piece of the pie. You've been involved with international projects where there have been transnational collaborations and that you have reason to believe that we can cooperate on big projects and get things done. Tell us about some of those projects. There's a positive side. Yeah, we can do a lot of things with a lot of different people and, and make some really cool, they're cool projects, whether they be some kind of a, oh, big Jurassic Park-like thing, like exhibits or whatever. Obviously we can work together with other people. And I just keep trying to push it toward the business of education, trying to get something to educate up and coming kids interested in dinosaurs or the general public, trying to get them to understand that dinosaurs didn't just chase Jeeps around. There's a lot of things that we can do internationally, but whether it's educational or not educational, we are in the business of making money. That is the bottom line. I'm Lila Moskowski, a student at Barnard College in New York City and a collaborator with the Creative Processes One Planet podcast. I first came across Jack Horner's work in Middle School Biodiversity Club when I listened to his TED talk, Building a Dinosaur from a Chicken which described the initial ideas for the Chickenosaurus project. I became captivated by the fact that a chicken, which is such a common species in everyday life, could be genetically altered to look like a dinosaur. It was mind-blowing to me that these modern-day animals we were living with, and in some cases eating for dinner, were directly related to the prehistoric creatures of the Mesozoic era. As an avid bird watcher, I am fascinated by the connection between birds and dinosaurs and by the idea that the dinosaurs were feathered and bird-like, as opposed to the scary human-eating reptiles we know from Jurassic Park. This concept paints a more vivid picture of the Mesozoic era for me, as I am able to draw from the diversity of bird species today and get an idea of what the dinosaurs might have actually looked like and how they might have interacted with the world around them. The notion that we are coexisting with the descendant of dinosaurs is intriguing to me, because it serves as a tangible example of the ways in which animals have evolved and adapted in order to survive as Earth rapidly changes. Additionally, Horner's focus on education highlights both the need for and importance of the perspective of the general public. Horner draws from his plethora of personal experiences when discussing the dinosaurs and their fossils, which adds a special level of affinity for the topic. It communicates to his audience the personal significance that his research has to him and demonstrates why he is so passionate about teaching the general public more about the truth of the dinosaurs. As we see from Jurassic Park, the media plays a massive role in shaping the public's opinions and perceptions and makes it difficult to alter these ideas once they are rooted in society. The need for both change and action from society as a whole goes beyond the vision of dinosaurs and is very pertinent now in our period of global warming. In the future, I hope to be able to draw from my own research like Corner does to speak to and educate people about climate change and species preservation. I believe that this is an incredibly effective way to show the audience the extent to which humans have actively damaged the earth and its species, and adds a level of individuality that makes it more accessible to everyone to push for change. And now, back to the interview. I wanted to know about, because you've had these international projects in Mongolia. I believe maybe you're still, we have a number of students there. Argentina, Tanzania, Romania, of course, you mentioned France and Spain. I was just curious about some of those projects. The international projects are very interesting. I go to a lot of countries 
to collect dinosaurs for the country. I don't bring anything back. I've had a lot of international students and I want those international students to be able to go back to their countries and be able to do things. And so Mongolia has been a place that I've been doing a lot of work with. I've had a couple of students from Mongolia. I've had postdoc and we've initiated a whole bunch of different research projects and educational projects. And so the work is ongoing and it's being led by one of my former doctoral students and one of my former postdocs, Bular Minjit, and she's doing all sorts of really cool things. Even she even has a, a traveling museum that's in a big Winnebago bus like structure and travels around Mongolia. So that's just stuff like that's really cool. But what I try to do is initiate these kinds of things and then stand back from them and let other people run them. I'm not trying to be in the way. If I have the possibility of helping somebody get going, I help them get going and then they do it. I can imagine you get a lot of requests and it can be labor intensive. And I'm wondering the field work that can be physically exhausting, right? Yeah, field work. When I was young, I loved going out and finding something and digging it up. As I get older, I go out and I find something and then I have my students dig it up. So less labor intensive when you have somebody else dig it up. In all the projects you've been talking about, I'm curious about if you have one, what your favorite project to work on has been, and if you have a favorite part of the research and discovery process. Interesting question. I love everything that I do. There aren't any projects that I really didn't like. So the Dino Chicken Project is pretty cool. The project that we call, I called it the Hell Creek Project, where we went out into the Hell Creek Formation and collected everything. We collected dinosaurs and fossil mammals and turtles and crocodiles and fish and leaves and everything and pieced together a whole ecosystem. That was pretty fun. I really liked that. It was unpredictable. Specifically, I like duckbill dinosaurs. Those are my favorite. And I was, the Hell Creek Formation, I thought was going to have lots of them. And so I thought I was going to learn an awful lot about a dinosaur called Edmontosaurus. And went out and hardly found it. We found two specimens and yet we found like a dozen T-Rex, right? Well, so the problem with paleontology is you work on whatever you get. And so I ended up publishing more papers on Tyrannosaurus Rex than any duckbill dinosaur. And it's cool because we learned a lot about T-Rex. We also found a lot of Triceratops. And so I published a number of papers on Triceratops. There's no way to predict what you're going to find when you go out looking for something. You can't say, oh, I'm going to just go out today. I'm going to go out and find myself an Edmontosaurus. If you go out into the Hell Creek Formation looking for an Edmontosaurus, chances are really good you're going to find a Triceratops first and probably T-Rex second. It's all enjoyable and you never know what the research might be about. We were digging up a T-Rex and my student, Mary Schweitzer, started drilling into it and getting biomolecules out of it, something that no one would have ever expected. So there's always a surprise. There's always something new and it's always exciting. It's just exciting. And that's why I say when I'm walking around in the field, looking for stuff, I'm always trying to 
think outside the box, trying to keep my mind open enough that I will discover anything. Yeah. Finding the unknown, I think is one of my favorite parts of the discovery and scientific process. And going back to the topic of education, is there a subject that you found that the general public is either the most interested in learning about or disputing? The whole business of what dinosaurs look like, right? This paradigm has been tough. It's still, it's very difficult to get people to think about dinosaurs bird-like rather than crocodilian. That is really hard for them. It's hard to get especially little kids, to think beyond Jurassic Park. They want dinosaurs to be just like they see in the movie. And that's what Steven Spielberg was selling. He knew that kids wanted to see stuff like that, and that's what he gave them. And it's not scientifically accurate. And so it's hard to fix this. Hey, and I was part of it. I was the scientific advisor. And yet now, as an educator, trying to get people out of that way of thinking and start really getting them to think about animals as animals. But again, you can't make a documentary and just show what happens there. Nobody's going to watch it because everybody's just sleeping, and eating grass. Same goes for dinosaurs. People don't like the idea of a big feather pink T-Rex. So you spoke about experiencing the world in a non-linear way and how it's brilliant how you've overcome the stigma being differently abled and I just think about all the generations of young people whose talents weren't spotted when we were just looking for one kind of intelligence one way of seeing the world you have projects where I believe you help students with similar learning challenges just tell us about some of those initiatives or how you go about empowering them I try to work with our LD students here at Chapman and it's difficult because they don't have to identify themselves. And so just going out and searching for them, it's hard to do because a lot of times they don't want their peers to know. Nowadays, we give the students the accommodation they need. So dyslexic kids just need more time to do things. And we accommodate that. We give them more time. And so they are able to perform like other students. And so it's hard now to get them to identify themselves as a dyslexic when they're actually don't have the disability anymore. So we fixed that. So nowadays it's getting harder to get these students into a group of some sort. What they don't realize is that they really still are different. They are spatial thinkers. They are special spatial thinkers. They're brilliant people. And if we could get them in a bunch together, I think we could do some pretty cool things with them because they just, they operate differently than linear thinkers do. Linear thinkers easily get together because that's the norm for our society, but gathering together a bunch of dyslexic students and getting them all to realize that their talents are really special and that together they might be able to come up with some really cool new ideas. It's just hard to do. It's just, like I say, it's hard to identify them. It's hard to get them to self-identify and, and come together as a group. Dyslexia is something that's pretty hard to define. A lot of people say people mix up letters. Some people would say that it is a case 
of a lack of short-term memory. And that's definitely what mine is. My difference is that I have no short-term memory. So that's why I can't memorize anything. I can't look at a, a phone number, for example, and transpose it from one piece of paper to another. I might be able to get three numbers at the most. Transpose three of the numbers. I can't keep track of three. And the same goes with just reading, like driving down the highway, look at a sign that says something and you're looking for a particular sign to say, where are you going to want to get off? Fortunately, GPSs help us now, but before a GPS, I drive down the road and I'd look at, and I couldn't read the sign quick enough. And then I couldn't remember it long enough to know whether it was what I need. And so a lot of times I just go around and around in, in a particular area, trying to read the sign. It's so fascinating. And yet you can remember things of such complexity that would be difficult for a lot of others to take in. I've learned that. I've ingrained it into my mind. I haven't memorized it. I can't memorize anything. So what the difference is, I can't even describe. I don't know why it is that I learn particular things or don't remember particular things. I don't know how to separate those. We have a brain institute here at Chapman University, and I was hoping I could go over there sometime. They could sort out, they could tell me what's going on in my brain. It's interesting. I'm interested very much in spontaneity and that it's linked to creativity and being open in that way. So it seems like when you're not memorizing everything by rote, you can access the, the font. You're more alive in that way. I make a lot of notes. I, when I'm doing my research, first off, the biggest key to my research is that if you do something that nobody else has done, then you don't have to read very much. That's the number one thing as far as what I do, I would be a terrible condition if I had to do research that a lot of people had done before, because then I'd have to read incredible amounts of stuff and I just would never get it done. So doing things that people haven't done before is a better way for me to operate. So as you reflect on the future and education and the challenges we face, the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what teachers or life lessons were important to you? The teachers that helped me the most were people that either showed me the big picture when I was looking at the small picture or people helped me get through school. I flunked out of college seven times. And you can't flunk out of college seven times unless somebody's helping you get back in each time. And so I think the most important thing I can say for anybody, whether you're dyslexic or not, is understand what you're good at and what you're not good at and get somebody to help you with the stuff that you're not good at. Exactly. And like you have obviously a talent also for identifying teachers and mentors and those, but also teams and leading them. So you not only just depend on ourselves, it's the intelligence of teams. Absolutely. Yep. Always, everyone has the ability to do something well. And if you can find what those are in other people, then you can put together a very strong team. Could you share some of your personal memories about the beauty and wonder of the natural world? You must have many from home in Montana and, and around the world. Anytime that I am out in nature, I'm not always in the present. 
I oftentimes drift back into the past in different levels. And so when I'm looking at a, a mountain in Montana, a big cliff, for example, I'm looking at the beauty of the cliff, but I'm also looking at what it represents, what that rock unit actually represents. And in many cases, cliffs in Montana are a rock unit called the Madison limestone, which represents an ocean that existed 300 million years ago. And so I can sit there and look at this spectacular 2000 foot cliff and think of it as a beautiful thing. And also imagine myself sitting next to this tropical sea that it represents. So I live in time, I guess. Yes. In many times. And what would you like the young people to know, preserve and remember? If there's something in this world you want to be, if you have the ambition, if you have the passion to be something and you have the ambition to go for it, then go for it. Be what you want to be. And don't worry about what other people say. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, you shouldn't do that because you won't make enough money. That's probably true if that's all you're interested in. If you have a passion to do something, then go for it. You've definitely shown us that it is possible. So thank you, Jack Horner, for your commitment to discovery and endless curiosity and the example of your life that no matter what our obstacles are, we can pursue our dreams and the pursuit of knowledge and discovery is never over. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process and One Planet podcast. You're very welcome. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michelski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Lila Muskowski with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Lila Muskowski. Digital Media Coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.